Before earth, God's will was the ordinance of the universe. His kingdom is where his will is done, and at one time, that was everywhere. He was and is transcendent, somehow existing outside of time and space, his kingdom unfathomable to us now, where alone is not something known, where everyone and everything has a place in the order of things, where whatever you have is always enough, where justice and honor and righteousness were the norm, where creativity flourishes and love is a state of being. Somehow in this realm outside of time, we got our beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. To this day, life only begins by his grace and power. And by those things, earth was born. And as he created, we know that the angels and creatures worshiped in his throne room day and night. The universe believed that he was worthy of all of their wonder and praise and adoration. All but one. An uprising began out of the inner circle. A prince among the angels let a seed of doubt grow in his heart. He threw out a challenge against God's wisdom and his character. Who are you to be on the throne? Give me a share of your glory. I want to be like the Most High. God could have quelled the rebellion, shut it down at the first sign, but he knew that the accusation would hang in the air. A seed of doubt would be planted in each creature's heart that across the universe the question would grow, is God good? Is he holding out on me? Is there another way? How do we know that his way is higher? That his laws are sound and that his wisdom is true? So he did what love always does. He let them choose. War broke out in the kingdom, and one-third of the angels defected with the prince of darkness, and they were hurled to earth. This is a weird story, a strange start to a new world, a mythical story. But all the versions of how we came to be are unsettling, and this one makes the most sense to me. God's will is the best way, the only way to, to, to sustain hope, peace, love, and joy. But how would the creatures of the universe, the angels, the humans he was creating in his own image know? And so even as his heart broke, God allowed himself to come into question. He allowed other wills to come into play. Lucifer's, the first man, the first woman, yours and mine. Two invitations went out to our ancient father and mother. The first, to believe God's wisdom and to trust his way of life. Or the second, to taste both good and evil and out of their own wisdom to decide for themselves. Which story would they believe? The accusation grew as the dark invitation was sent to the first man and the first woman, the same accusation that's whispered in our ears today. Are you sure that God's not holding out on you? What's wrong with knowledge? How can you prove that his way is best? Are his commandments not limiting, unrealistic, or out of touch? 
Maybe God didn't have all the information. Don't you want to know for yourself? Heaven was still the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God is where his will is done and it's perfect. Earth had a chance to be in that kingdom, but when they betrayed the king, all was lost. And out of God's great wisdom, his integrity, his goodness, kindness, and power, he let us choose another king. And now we have the freedom that we so often think we want to do whatever we want. I can do my will anytime I want, and you can do yours. And the president of Venezuela can do his, and sex traffickers theirs, and the racist, and the rapist, and the shooter, because outside of God's kingdom, all wills are allowed to play out. And death is everywhere. I don't know how much access other worlds or even the angels have to observing this war zone we have here on earth, but there must have been a stirring in heaven as the loyal creatures heard the unraveling of God's perfect world. The question had to echo in their ears, what is God up to? Haven't we seen enough? It was nice to let the enemy try some things, but isn't it time to get him back in line? How long do you let an imposter go? When does it stop and how? If God wouldn't stop him in the beginning, what point has to be reached for him to intervene? Is it genocide? Is it child cancer? Where is the line? They must have asked. And why does he keep letting these humans decide things? God seemed to be attempting to raise up this people of God on earth. He gave them instructions and laws that reflected his wisdom, all inviting them back to the way that things were. But it seemed that as quickly as he gave instructions, his people did the opposite. Anytime he shared some wisdom or some prophetic words, Things quickly turned and went south. Abraham jumped the gun to have Isaac. Jacob stole the birthright from Esau. The brothers sold Joseph and then eventually got into captivity in Egypt. Even the plagues and then the taste of freedom didn't convince them that God's will was higher. With every command God gave, it seemed as if each story of his people showed how unable they were to follow instructions. Finally, they become their own nation. Then they, just like Lucifer himself, wanted their own king. A human one, and as expected, things didn't go well. A few good prophets were left, and they're ignored or murdered by their people. Even David, the king after God's own heart, was a murderer and a womanizer. The angels had to be asking the accusers question themselves, even as they questioned humanity. Is God's way best? How long, Lord, the suffering is so great. The plan isn't working. Humanity is clearly incapable of living within the kingdom of God. Meanwhile, on earth, the people of God looked for his kingdom Throughout the ages, promises of stories had been passed down the generations. The first family system produced little good fruit, but out of their line, it was promised a king was coming. I think most thought that this new kingdom of God would look like another rebellion, 
a leader born to earth to overthrow oppression and suffering. The angels probably thought the promise would immediately rid the universe of Lucifer and his following. The people of God weren't even that far-sighted. They were just hoping for a zealot to be born to overthrow the Roman Empire and create a Jewish nation. A place for them to live in comfort and prosperity. Sounds a little short-sighted and familiar, doesn't it? A complex and violent solution to a complex and violent problem. But the answer, the plan the Trinity had had since day one was simple. So simple and powerful and beautiful that it must have felt like folklore. God himself was coming. At this point, Israel was despondent. There hadn't been a prophet for hundreds of years until one day in the temple, Zechariah sang a song. Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness in the shadow of death to guide our feet on the path of peace. God was coming. And that must have been so confusing. Peace, God himself, tender mercy, God's great plan here is empathy, connection, compassion. That's no way to win a war, the angels must have thought. But within the year, and I'm sure to the universe's confusion, Jesus himself left the throne room of God and was born to Mary and Joseph as a baby in the most uneventful way. Imagine the angel's angst as the only announcement they were instructed to give was to the lowliest of people, the shepherds in their fields. What was God up to? After they've ignored all God's other messages, maybe they will listen to his son. Even as Jesus was born and grew into a man, his life was simple. 90% of it lived in anonymity. His cousin John announcing his arrival and soon beginning ministry, but still, no one got it. No one sees it coming. They still think the kingdom of God will be some sort of violent rebellion. When he begins to teach, Jesus' stories are startling, uncomfortable, challenging, and unexpected. The love and acceptance radiating from him is disquieting, it's vulnerable, and it is full of joy. He says things like, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's me, Jesus was saying, I am the kingdom, I am love, I am home. My will is where everything good happens. I'm with you, and the great news is that even here, even in this age, where things are not as they will be, when I finally take you home, the kingdom of God can be on earth, even in the midst of rebellion. Because where I am, my kingdom is, come and follow me. As he describes what life in the kingdom is like, he goes deeper than the initial wisdom that God gave his people. Where the law says not to murder, Jesus invites his listeners not to even be angry with one another. Where the old wisdom says not to cheat on your spouse, Jesus describes any form of lust as a path to unfaithfulness. Humanity's heart is once again exposed as being completely unable to live in God's kingdom. 
What is he doing, the universe must have asked. If he's hoping to raise up a people to live his way of life on earth, he can't set the bar higher. No one will qualify. But as the palm branches waved and hallelujahs were sung, hope must have stirred in the hearts of men and angels. Maybe this is it. Their hope was misinformed, but not misplaced. For within the week, they watched their servant king eat his last meal with those he loved as he washed their filthy feet. They saw him weep in anguish as his closest friends slept. They witnessed the kiss of the betrayer, the abandonment of all, and the denial of a dear friend. They watched the whip tear at his back, the thorns dig into his forehead, and the nails destroy the hands that had so recently washed his people's feet. It is finished, echoed as the sky went black. And all hope was lost. Where has hope been lost in your story? I think we're not much different than those people long ago Because if you're like me, there are places in your life where no matter what you try, no matter what you do, you come up short. You just can't be the person you long to be. I can't do the things that I want to do. And as I follow Jesus, it's frustrating because while most of the characters in the biblical narrative were in the dark, we know how the story ends. And yet, we still struggle. A quote I read recently said, Today, a number of historical circumstances are blindly flowing together and accidentally conspiring to produce a climate within which it is difficult not just to think about God or to pray, but to simply have any interior depth whatsoever. We are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion, pathological busyness. Distraction and restlessness are all major blocks within our spiritual lives. I saw this thing on Instagram, a pastor I followed posted it. It said, 2018 Internet Minute. I have no idea how they calculated this. But what happens in one minute on the Internet is 266,000 hours were watched as an average last year in 2018. In one minute. Instagram, 174,000 people are scrolling in any given minute in 2018. This year, both of those numbers almost tripled. Netflix, 694,000 hours watched in one minute. Instagram, almost 350,000 people scrolling in any given minute. So the first part of the story of God and us involves following commands, and we see in this biblical narrative that humanity just fails miserably. And like the parable of the vineyard, God sends messenger after messenger until he finally sends his son. And the way the son describes the kingdom of God raises the bar from simply doing good to being good. And in both cases, it seems that the stories of the Bible, one of the key things that they want to show is that humanity just cannot do either one of those. We cannot do good and we cannot be good. What's strange, I think, about our place in history is that where for thousands of years 
the questions seem pretty straightforward. You either did or you didn't do evil. You were good or you were evil. You chose good things or you chose evil things. But in our time, we've almost constructed this third space. A space where it seems as if you can choose neither. Where you can distract and numb out with Netflix or food or shopping or social media with busyness and excitement. Choose whatever drug you will. Why choose when we can be distracted? I think it's never been easier in the history of the world to distract ourselves. Whether that be, I think it's one of the larger lies of our time is that we don't have to choose to follow Jesus. Whether that be because he doesn't exist or many roads lead up the same mountain or we just distract ourselves into oblivion. I imagine that if we could listen to the conversations of angels now, we would hear them wondering when we will stop, when we will Shabbat or cease long enough to notice the beauty of what God is doing. It scares me both for myself and the generations around me. How can Jesus' constant invitation, how can the Holy Spirit's constant beckonings and wooings and movements be picked up by a generation so distracted? In one of my most panicked seasons of worry about this very question, I came across this verse in Psalms. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. The story of the Bible is really just an example, example after example of each generation missing it, missing the mark, missing the signs, missing what God is doing in that time. And each time, all, when all hope seems lost, God comes. Our church history, even from after Jesus' death until now, has been marked by revival, by spiritual awakening, right when it seems as if the Christian movement, the Jesus movement, will die out, a new generation of people rise up to take the old generation's place. He moves. He reaches the people of that time in their brokenness, in their inability, and in their specific darkness. None of this is a surprise to God. On that good Friday, the enemy had won. From all perspectives watching, as Jesus hung on that cross, darkness had won. Because if Jesus had come to raise up a people willing and capable of living in the kingdom of God, darkness had just stomped it out. If Jesus had come to lead rebellion, to set up a new kingdom on earth by defeating the Romans and uniting the Jewish nation, the Romans had responded by hanging him on a cross. And if there was any doubt about the darkness of the heart of the enemy, the universe saw it as he killed God's son. But the servant king had not come to lead a rebellion. His perfect life exposed the imperfections of everyone around him. His love and acceptance sent the message that God was, not, was jealous for all kinds of people, no matter what they had done or what they were like or what they believed. No, Jesus had not come to place a new set of expectations on his people. He had come to fulfill them himself. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For just as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man many will be made righteous. And when that stone rolled away on, the, on that ancient Sunday morning, our king rose with the keys to hell and death in his hand. Keys that promise to unlock the hearts of all generations that will believe. To give us access to the power of transformation available to us as Jesus makes us into the kind of people that he described. A people of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, we thank you and we praise you. We grow up hearing your story. We live in a Christian nation, God, but we just ask that you would make yourself fresh to us. That you would meet us where we are, that you would give us a new perspective of who you are, what you've done, and who you want us to be in you. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you do not do what we expect. But you bring your kingdom here. And we ask that you do that in our hearts, in our community as compass, in our town. We ask that you would use us, that you would move through us, and that you would start building your kingdom on earth here in our hearts. In your name, amen.